My name is Janiele Vidal, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Environmental Health Sciences program that is currently housed in the School of Medicine, but will be moved to the new School of Population Health and Disease Prevention. And my work deals with looking at Alzheimer's disease, but I look at an environmental copper exposure and look at how that might exacerbate the disease, but I also look at the gut microbiome as a part of that pathology. I hope that my work can elucidate the role of the microbiome in neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's disease and present a therapeutic target for this pathology. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. With me in the studio studio today is Janiela Vidal, who is a UCI student in the, um, you said you're transferring departments, right? Yeah, transferring departments, but the program will remain the same. It's environmental health sciences, but instead of school of medicine, it will be the school of population health and disease prevention. Which I will have to ask about in a little bit. But anyway, yes, welcome, uh, Janiela. Uh, thank you. We know each other because we're active in science communication and stuff like that, uh, very glad to have you come down and have a chat with me because thank you never, for inviting me. Yeah, it's been a it's a great excuse to finally sit down and have a chat. I yes, think. yeah. <laughs> so thank you. So yeah, please uh, could you start off uh, talking about your work uh, studying Alzheimer's disease, but specifically in the gut microbiome? Yes. So um, as you know, there's no prevention or cure on board for Alzheimer's disease. So. We're looking, scientists are approaching this in many different ways, and the microbiome has been emerging as a critical role player in health and disease. So naturally, we want to look at how this might play a role in Alzheimer's disease if we hope to um, treat it, because by, I think estimates say by 2050, if we don't have an intervention or a treatment, it will cost U.S. healthcare about a trillion dollars, so... We need to be very innovative when trying to find solutions to this public health problem. What's the difficulty with finding a cure for Alzheimer's or trying to prevent it? Uh, the difficulty is, it's like, okay, it started off with finding these sorts of causative mutations. Like we said, okay, yes, these are known to be um, to, to cause the disease. So this is in the APP gene, which contains the amyloid beta sequence to form senile plaques that we, we've like all heard about in the disease. But not everyone who has senile plaques go on, goes on to develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's very tricky. It's a very complicated disease. And with genome-wide association studies now have implicated tons of, um, new genes, different, um, 
susceptibility loci. And um, so you have immune genes implicated, metabolic function. So it's just this multifaceted problem. Um, and everyone's like doing their bit, trying to chip away at it, I think. And so my part is to kind of see if the microbiome is playing a role. And um, that's what I hope, you know, my research can contribute to be like, hey, this is a major player and we interact with the environment. So with this copper exposure, um, the EPA upper limit in drinking water is 1.3 ppm. And in rodent studies and some um, epidemiological data implicates copper as um, playing a role in exacerbating mild cognitive decline. And so that's how copper came into sort of my lab's purview, but no one was looking at the gut microbiome. So that kind of is how I want to contribute because it's just such a hot topic. The technology is there now with next-gen sequencing. So it's a pretty exciting time to be studying the microbiome. You talked a little bit about how you guys got around to studying copper, but how does that relate to the gut microbiome? Oh, right. That, that is a very important link. Thank you for asking that question because I often forget to say that. So copper um, as, an, as a metal is a natural antimicrobial. And so it is used in a variety of sort um, in a variety of spaces as an antimicrobial. It is incorporated into metal services, um, in hospitals and other spaces for that antimicrobial um, capability that it has. So is so, it part of an alloy or? So they can make an alloy out of it or just have, um, just use using copper metals for certain things. So um, piping, if you think about it, right? Copper is very sturdy, but it also has that effect where it won't be growing necessarily all of these harmful bacterial films because it has that property. You have reduction of um, very pathogenic bacteria on copper services, and it's including in, in filters and all sorts of um, antimicrobial surfaces or products. Um, so yeah, so our thinking was if this is in drinking water, even at a low grade level, we've seen in mice that even 10 times below the EPA limit, we're seeing, you know, effects in um, Alzheimer's model um, rodents. Uh, what could be happening to the gut microbiome? It's the first interface when we ingest something. Um, could that potentially be facilitating changes in the microbiome that play a role in disease? And so um, I've done a pilot study so far um, for my dissertation work. And so far, what I've seen is it was a three-month study, very brief, but my Alzheimer's model disease mice, um, they their microbiome is less resilient to the effects of copper. Like their microbiome was altered significantly when compared to wild types that are of the same age. And so that is a very interesting finding. Although within my APP mice, that's the model that I'm using, um, APP knock-in to be more correct, uh, they, I didn't see any um, changes in my Alzheimer's disease endpoints, but I do think with a longer exposure, similar to what humans might face, because, you know, we drink water every day. And, you know, a lot of people, 
drink straight from the tap. And so it presents a paradigm with the, the next study that I will be doing presents a paradigm that will more closely resemble what human exposure would be like. How much copper do people get in their day to day? Most of the copper, right, will come from your food. And I don't want people to think, okay, I'm going to avoid copper forever. No, copper is an essential metal. We actually need it for life. It is in a variety of essential enzymes, namely one that, you know, is in the electron transport chain and provides our body with energy. It is incorporated into superoxide dismutase, which helps get rid of free radicals in our body. So super important metal, but the harm is taking copper in that free form. So when it's in, when it's protein bound, that is essential for us. We get our copper intake to be incorporated into our enzymes and we have sort of this natural copper homeostasis, if you, if you will. But when we do take extra dietary copper, so like inorganic copper that might be in drinking water and in a study that was out of Chicago, they found that the excess copper was coming from supplements, actually, um, that that can be detrimental to health. And in that study, I want to say that it was copper um, in combination with a, a diet that was high in fat in humans. But... Even without the high fat, my lab and others have shown effects on the brain um, at this EPA level in in an Alzheimer's disease model mouse. I will have to clarify that too. Uh, before we move on, I, I think it's worth mentioning for the benefit of the audience that, uh, yeah, there is a very big difference between getting copper in just its metal form, metallic yes. form, versus the copper that we might intake right. as uh, when it's built into the structure of a protein. Yes. In a protein bound form, it is safe and it's current it's in it's protected from doing um any sort of redox chemistry. So you know about copper, it, it is a transition metal. It can it has um a lot of redox potential to do like harbor wise process and fenton like chemistry, although you know fenton reactions are mostly iron, but it can do fenton like reactions to um, generate um, oxidative stress, so creating free radicals that might um, go ahead and damage DNA or cause mutations or things like that. So um, so in a protein-bound form, it's protected from that and the body can regulate it. It's very tightly regulated in the body. And actually, I think the highest concentrations of copper are in our liver, which makes sense, packed with enzymes, um, and our brain. So... And our bone, but, you know, those, if we're thinking about sort of organs with, like, a lot of functions we really, really care about, the it's the liver and um, your brain. And I do think, yeah, copper, the copper story with Alzheimer's disease is quite complicated because we found copper is, um, in humans at least, it's dysregulated in the AD brain, so the levels are lower than normal. I think in like the hippocampus, which is, you know, the seat of learning and memory. AD and being Alzheimer's. Yes, AD being points. Alzheimer's. Okay. And um, in the amygdala, I think the levels are lower than in non-Alzheimer's disease patients. So it's weird. It's like 
we don't know what's going on really even there. So it's just more reason to study it and to see what is this copper really interacting with that is causing these disease pathologies? Possibly. I, I don't know. It's a complete hypothesis. I might come back and see, okay, after a long-term exposure, the microbiome actually bounces back and this is not significant. But I think it's important to explore because gut microbes, you know, outnumber or host cells like 10 to 1. So we can't sit here and pretend it's doing nothing. It's possibly, I think, I 100% believe it's doing a lot. So. Yeah, certainly there's uh, some of the wilder theories out there is that people are not really people. We're just spaceships for microbes. Sort I of. mean, it's a great analogy. And I'm like, the data shows it. It's like we have so much bacteria, you know, and each part of our bodies that we thought were sterile before, you know, has a microbiome, you know, your lungs do, you know, um, and for a long while, like in a part of, for example, for um, female health in maintaining like good vaginal pH has always been microbiome centered to like keep the, you know, keep your microbes happy after you take antibiotics, take yogurt to, you know, repopulate. And so like, I feel alternative medicine or even just some sort of like, you know, my mother said this works, you know, handed down through generations has always kind of acknowledged that there are these microbes here and we want to keep them happy. Um, So it's good to see that, you know, the technology has come to a place now where we can really start sequencing these things, assigning um, taxonomies uh, and really seeing what exists because before people were just depending on what can we culture and 99% of it you can't, right? And so that's the power of this tool, next-gen sequencing, where we can just take, look at the structure of... um, bacterial genes and say okay they have these different variable regions we can have um, primers to attach to a certain um, like conserved region and then we can sequence like what is there and so in my little pilot study I'm able to detect over a thousand different bacterial species I mean most of them don't have uh, classification down to species level but you know we still have a pretty good idea of who the major players are and like what might be changing. It's powerful. And, you know, a lot of these, um, this data now is a part of big data. So you're using Python and R to, you know, run all these statistical models, like design your own packages, even for those gifted people out there. I'm not one of them. I really just see what's out there and try to code. And that's another thing I had to do as a grad student, just pick this up. Um, we're really good about that. (laughs) And, Yeah, so it's been a journey. I'm really excited about where this research might be going, and I'm excited to see what my data tells me. So with these advanced sequencing techniques, it's basically just taking all these bacteria and extracting out all the genetic data that's inside. Okay, I can can take you through the process a little bit. Yes, please. Fun. You know, other people get to do, like, if they're doing human studies sometimes, and it's, like, skin microbiome. Like, I have a friend who did uh, skin microbiome after you've been exposed to seawater, ocean water. Um, 
and you get a lot of Vibrio species people. You might have to get her her on the show for her to talk about uh, that. Yes, but um, so for gut sampling, I took fecal pellets from my mice, and I extract DNA. And then what we do is that we have primers uh, trained for the 16S ribosomal RNA um, in the variable region 4. Um, And that is what goes through Amplicon sequencing. And then we use the Illumina platform, MySeq chemistry, to sequence everything that's there. So each sample that I collect. So let's say I had about 200 samples, they get individually barcoded and then they get sequenced. And then once they're sequenced, the data has to be trimmed, um, denoised, but I'm able to then put that through um, a database. So there's one from like Earth Microbiome Project. And so we use one that's called Green Genes and that assigns taxonomy to each of those individual bacteria that we're picking up. So I'm able to get counts in each sample. Um, so that's like sort of relative abundance. And so then I can look on a sample to sample basis, how the composition is varying um, in what we call richness. So just the amount of different species that are there. And that's an alpha diversity metric. Or we can look at how the, of what bacteria are there, how are they changing from sample to sample and so that's like a beta diversity composition like how different in of their levels are um of each bacteria and so or each i want to say depending you know on what you're looking at if you're looking at phylum level or family level just how those uh communities are changing and if that is significantly different in for example for me my water treated group or my copper treated group and so it's very fascinating. And the Illumina platform also has changed, you know, not just microbiome studies, but, you know, RNA-seq. It's now commonplace. Um, everyone is using RNA-seq to get single cell data, to do a lot of um, gene ontology, just trying to see what genes are being um, sort of modulated by different treatment paradigms or in different disease states. It's, you know, this next-gen sequencing platform is like a game-changer. So basically you get to extract out all the RNA that exists in poop. Yeah. And then from the spread of the um, the genetic data, you run it through a database and it kind of tells you like, ah, oh, you guys got this much yeah, of this stuff. You, and this, yep. These sorts of dudes are this much of those. That's pretty cool. Seems it is really cool. Um, and just super informative. Like I'm thinking about how many years ago would we have been able to do this? And the answer is just like, no. And this much information is why bioinformatics is, is huge now. Like we just need people to teach us basic scientists how to really run this data and like what statistical tools are appropriate because, you know, I can't use just a simple ANOVA. I have to use something called a permanova to analyze my data. And it's just like a specialized ANOVA for ecological data, which is what this is. And so it's all been a journey. The UCI Microbiome Initiative have been my besties. They're <laughs> the, the ones that, you know, actually helped me a lot with this. I got a pilot project award through them and 
they uh, basically got my foot in the door with the microbiome um, studies. You know, I came in not knowing anything. Six months later, I'm like kind of getting there with it. So it's exciting. So how then did this study evolve into kind of where it is now? You guys had this initial hypothesis about copper will affect the microbiome. Like we couldn't even be asking these sorts of questions without tools as powerful to be able to sequence yes. microbes as quickly as you can yes. and as thoroughly as you can, right? So I guess how 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 did this project get to this point? Um, so it, I mean, in the beginning stages, is just talking with my PI and just like throwing ideas out there for dissertation, like how can we? You know, we've seen all these effects of copper in the brain, and my lab has shown things. Um, it has effects on sort of the amount of amyloid plaques that exist in the brain, um, how amyloid is being cleared, um, especially this protein called LRP, LRP1 um, that helps facilitate the clearance of amyloid beta across the blood-brain barrier. So just different um, types of effects we've seen just with copper exposure. Um, microglia are less phagocytically active in in the presence of copper. So we've seen all of these effects. And so we're saying, you know, the microbiome has been implicated in like Parkinson's very um, heavily. And so we're like, well, you know, is this playing a role in AD? Is this some, is there some other mechanism that we could be missing? And so we're like, let's just try it. The UCI Microbiome Initiative funds award um, pilot projects to see, just explore, to get scientists uh, used to looking at the microbiome as kind of like another organ, right? Because technically it is, because that many cells, it help, you know, the microbiome helps us with digestion, training our immune system, host of different functions that are absolutely necessary. And um, so I think it's, it just came out of this need to say, well, okay, you know, so much is being said about the microbiome now and like we really should be treating it like something that is mediating disease. And so if we want to understand the disease, we need to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And so we just went for it. <laughs> this is hypothesis your own then? This hypothesis, like a lot of it is yes like well he well my pi gave me the put the seed there kind of like you know copper is a natural antimicrobial so let's look at the microbiome and so just sort of the effects that i'm starting to see and fine-tuning the um hypothesis for example in my pilot study i saw it nearly decimated this one um uh, genus of bacteria in the in firmicutes and it's called allobaculum and it's a short chain fatty acid producer and I'm like well man okay so all across the board this one genus was down and I'm like wait actually if I zoom out and look at the phylum level it's just at that phylum is being reduced in the AD model. And then when I look at human studies of the microbiome in AD, that holds true too. And so I'm like, this is really interesting. And then I look at the other phyla that was increased, the bacteroidetes, and they're gram-negative bacteria, right? And so they produce endotoxins called um, like LPS, like lipopolysaccharide, which is very immunogenic, right? And LPS, lipopolysaccharide, is found in the brains of human AD patients. 
and it's only produced by bacteria. Humans can't produce um, LPS. And so I'm like, well, we've been, you know, noticing this the whole time. And we're like, huh, it has to be coming from your gut. But how is it getting to your brain? You know, and so it's like, should we check plasma levels? You know, um, but for me, just looking at, hey, this one phylum in the disease state that is gram negative and they, they're known to produce this LPS is increasing in the gut and is higher in 80 patients than their age match controls. I'm like, this could be a possible mechanism. So I think even though my PI sort of seeded the idea, I'm starting to like hone in on, you know, what specifically can I track to show like this might have some role from your gut to your brain. And so I'm like exploring all the possible avenues. Uh, Another thing too, with when you have a gut that is perturbed, so it's not healthy, um, you get a breakdown of your gut lumen and that can cause bacterial infiltration. So now I'm looking at the integrity of the gut. So half the time, you know, people are saying, oh, well, are you looking at brain effects? I'm looking at your, my, the gut. I've taken, you know, the ileum and the colon of mice um, to section them for tight junction markers um, to see if the integrity is being disrupted. So it's like I start with the microbiome but I'm trying to track it to put together a whole story of systemically this leads to this state, um, this disease state. And so I, yeah, I think, and that wasn't in the original thing I, we talked about with my PI. It's just me reading papers and like trying to, you know, um, you always hear to get something funded get your research funded. You need a mechanism. You need a mechanism. You can't, you know, gone are the days where we're just observing what um, changes are happening. We need to start making a story, tying things together. Um, And I think that's important too, to just, if you're trying to make, you know, chip away at like what might be happening with the disease, really needs to be mechanism focused. And so that's all I'm trying to do. Like he seeded the idea definitely, but I think I'm the one like, trying to make all the things together because he's always said you know man this is so high risk for a grad student you know (laughs) um so new and he can't really help me with it because he doesn't know anything about the microbiome so i'm just on the fly just doing it and so i think yeah i'm trying to tie the pieces together when i tell people this story too they're like man i don't know you know are you gonna publish i'm like i hope i will i mean i already started seeing changes it might not make a major paper this time, but I, I don't think that's necessarily like my focus to publish, pub, like be like, oh, I want that publication. I'm just trying to tie the story together because I think there's one there. So you mentioned that there are so many things at play. There's, there isn't like one thing that causes Alzheimer's. Yes. Because it's always very different in a lot of people, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, different people... mutations. Um just you know um other factors play a role sort of like diet and exercise education level you know this has been studied epidemiologically like you know what are the major factors and so it there's so many different genes that are associated with the disease and like how much risk it confers and like so it's the interaction of like your genetics with the environment and so very complicated story yeah 
So then, and yeah, searching, pulling on one of those threads is just one PhD. Yes. Right? <laughs> and there's so many to be pulled on. Yes, so many um, to be pulled on. So uh, several questions about that. So number yeah. one, for you personally, knowing yeah. that it was kind of high risk, knowing that your advisor couldn't really help you that much, but you had this idea and you wanted to run with it. Um, how did you, uh, yes, were there any thoughts about, uh, I need to publish stuff, I need to graduate and things like that. Were there any fears like that behind making that decision and just be like, hey, I want to study this? Uh, I think, yeah, there's a huge fear because even with my, when I think about my my advancement proposal, um, I wanted to look at microglial senescence. And it's not that I won't ever look at it, but I just had issues with um, the with actually getting any senescent data. Well, what is senescence? Sene- oh, uh, senescence is uh, basically the deterioration of cells as they age. They become in sort of like this uh, state of just like arrested cell cycle almost. So they're just like, imagine these cells are just sitting around and just being like, meh, instead of actually like doing, carrying out proper function. And so that happens with every cell in our body um, as we age. Just get tired and worn out. Yeah. So it's just, you know, like if something was like, let's say, because nothing is ever 100% efficient. Let's say it was 98% efficient, um, this cell process. Like, for example, your immune system. Um, Then, you know, it just keeps falling over. It's like kind of like a decay rate, you know, just falls off over time. That's just aging and senescence they go hand in hand and so um i was looking to see if copper exposure um induces sort of a premature senescent state in the microglia because that would explain why you know their surrounding plaques in the brain but not being able to clear it necessarily or carry out their normal you know immune function and so, and you know, even res- resolving um, inflammation because you'll see they'll continue to secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines instead of like you know having your initial um, jump to inflammation and having anti-inflammatory to like sort of resolve it. It's just in this sort of active state always. Um, so I was looking at that, but like sort of, you know, it's data driven science. And so I wasn't really getting anything, but my microbiome data showed promise. I was seeing changes. I, you know, um, some of the the changes made sense when I started to look on like short chain fatty acid synthesis potentially, um, as being affected. And those are critical for, um, training the immune system. And so I'm like, okay, uh, there, there are a lot of things to flesh out here. I think I'm going to, you know, put my focus here. And so that's how that kind of steered me in that direction. It doesn't mean I won't look at senescence ever again, because I do think it's a very interesting story. Copper has been shown at certain levels to induce senescence in human lung fibroblasts and other cell types. So, you know, it just makes sense. And I don't think anyone has really shown it with microglia or astrocytes. So I think that definitely is something, you know, once I optimize protocols or just methods that I could revisit. So it's like, you know, as a grad student, you have to have a bunch of projects in your back pocket, you know, because it's the nature of science. Something might not work out. So 
I definitely do think the microbiome data is um, promising. And I think I do want to explore senescence in the future as a, you know, as a backup or just adding to the story. The more you can add to the story, the more context you can provide, the better. Was the decision to switch to this project Mm -hmm. away from the senescence and microglia, uh, was that in part due to sort of, I guess, the, the pressure to... Like, we needed to tell a story here. Or else, yeah, like, I, yeah, there is definitely... I mean, that there's a definite pressure in in grad school and just science in general because if, so, if you don't have any data to show for something, you can't... You don't have preliminary data to support that grant. You know, that's money you're missing out on. And so you have to sort of switch focus. You have to find what it's not that you don't have that idea or that idea goes away forever but it's just like right now that's not working out so you need to find something that's working and especially in a phd when you're like okay you got x amount of years you got to do this and like sometimes people read nature papers and they're like oh my god this is so beautiful you know how did this lab get this and they might have been working on it for 10 years you don't know so you know it could be you're looking at a paper that could have been multiple phds um and it probably was or someone just won the lottery. Or yeah, you know, right. The, so, the pulling the string lottery, I mean. Yes. And there, yeah. So I definitely think um, there's that pressure to be like, well, okay, I needed to advance, right? I needed, well, to write my advancement document, looking at my data. It's like, what do I have? And that's the story I could tell. I can really tell this in essence story. Although I could back that up with literature to say this is probably what's happening, but I haven't done it in my own hands yet. And so it's like, kind of had to let that go for a little bit. Well, it is awesome that you're working on something that is really cool. Uh, I, In a way, I think it's kind of a shame. I think it's, it's a shame that scientists can't just uh, pull on every thread that we feel like pulling on. Yeah. Because again, like I said, we don't, there's no way to tell how long they are or where they end up or what gets unraveled. There's no way to tell until you're done. Mm-hmm. Right. And especially with something like Alzheimer's disease that has so many angles. So many angles. And you can even think about just the sheer number of professors at UCI who are working on oh, it. Oh yeah. There's a lot of people working on Alzheimer's. And then even if you think about it too, just trying to translate the research into the clinic, which is how, the model AD consortium came about is to create better mouse models for the disease. Um, Because I think, I don't know, the percentage of the failure rates for Alzheimer's disease drugs that have been tested in mice is just ridiculously high. And so, you know, that's a question you'll always get. You're like, how can you trust the rodent data? Um, But, you know, it, it's a problem scientists are thinking about and actively working with. So instead of, you know, sort of just inducing um, these causative mutations, for example, so APP um, changes in PS1, um, and these are all genes that have to do with how much amyloid beta you're forming, right? Um, and even in the Laferla mouse, triple transgenic, they have these mutations to have the, the mice develop tangles and plaques and have deficits in long-term potentiation, which is, again, sort of memory consolidation. But um, they, you know, it's still not perfect. Um, and so it's just 
working to see how we really can just get over that hump. And so a lot of money, a lot of people, great people on that project. Um, a lot of universities. Away. Huh? Just pulling away. Pulling away. Just pulling right at that thread. Um and I, I feel like, you know, with this effort and, the, the you know, the Obama administration had a big push to try to solve this Alzheimer's disease problem. And, you know, with modern medicine, the elderly population growing, it is a great concern um, just for quality of life and just, you know, public health impact in terms of costs um, to try to to get some therapies on board. Regarding uh, that one point uh, you mentioned along a little while in the very beginning, yes, about how it's going to cost the healthcare system one trillion dollars in twenty fifty. Yeah, in twenty fifty, that's a lot of money. Is there? It's, yeah, and that's all just taking care of people that have Alzheimer's, pretty much, and you know, doing things that aren't going to cure it because we don't have one yet. And no way of slowing down disease progression too, because if you could slow it down, that could also save dollars, but. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that was what I was going to ask. Are there any other ways to get about that thread? I, I get about that at a completely different angle because, you know, there's already a lot of brain power and money put into finding a cure, finding what's what's going on, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in the face of that direness and the immediate need to take care of people, I was going to ask, yeah, is there a push to just make the disease not nearly as bad? Yeah, I think, so that is the definite thread. So I think um, there's an effort to find a cure, obviously, but we're really just looking at how can we at least even slow this down? I, I, I don't think people are beyond that. So even, you know, I was just having this talk with uh, a professor in our department because we had our department retreat recently, and he said, you know, because he used a... Uh, drug that also Kim Green's group uses um, called PLX5622 to basically get rid of the, the microglia in the brain for a little bit. As long as the mice are taking the drug, they ablate something, a very high percentage, I can't forget how much, but basically all the microglia are gone. Not completely gone, um, but they see improved cognition. They see improved... Um, well, actually, in, 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 in Alzheimer's disease, that is the uh, end point you're really looking at to see if it, cognition improves. And you do see that improved cognition. And he basically said um, that he would, you know, take a drug. He's like, I wish I could get rid of my microglia. And I was like, well, wow, that's interesting because, you know, I just see them as good guys that go bad in disease state, right? But he said, you know, I said, well, microglia are important for um, the developing brain. And he's like, well, you know, a lot of things we need when we're young, we don't need when we're old. So I, if I could just take a pill periodically to just get rid of my microglia, repopulate them, get rid of them again, repopulate them so that they, they never get to that state where they're causing harm, it could be actually neuroprotective. And I, so I, th- I think that is something that people are going to explore more based on his data, which looks at sort of um, irradiation effects on the brain. He sees a lot of neuroinflammation too that's kind of underlining many neurological diseases. And he sees that if you get rid of microglia and let them come back, it's 
not nearly as harmful as just having the mice be irradiated with their regular microglial population. And so I think there's going to be a lot of focus there. There's something about that that screams to me, peak Anthropocene. (laughs) Because, like, so the degree of control that we're talking about over our own selves to, in a way, protect us from our own selves... <laughs> something. I, something I know. It's about like that. when you think about it philosophically, <laughs> like yeah. But you know, sometimes you do need to. Like sometimes, you know, it's like I don't know. Maybe it's like getting an oil change. You know, if you view it like that, like you know, these systems are running perfectly fine. But sometimes you need to just replenish, and I think that's the approach he's taking with that. Because we, you know, in the beginning, microglia are good for synaptic pruning. So you making sure all of your um, synapses are working well and like training your brain and forming those um, connections. It helps facilitate that. But I, he might be right. I don't know. But then, you know, it might come out too that we think this is a miracle and then there are some side effects we're not observing it, you know. So it's all very, all very interesting. Microglia are very interesting. Um, I find them very interesting because even with connecting it back to the microbiome, um, if you get rid of the microbiome through sort of specific germ-free mice or just giving them antibiotics and getting rid of the microbiome completely, they see that these microglia have an immature um phenotype and they're not as um, efficient at what they do so it's like the microbiome is also playing a role in how microglia behave and so it's just a very interesting story the more i think about it the deeper i fall in the rabbit hole and the more papers i read and like wow i don't know anything (laughs) the rabbit holes are fun yeah aren't they the business of science i think yes it is it's like find yourself a rabbit hole and try to climb out of it and you get a bunch of papers out of it (laughs) But yeah, so fun tidbits. Microbiome is awesome. It really is. It does so much. I'm in awe of it every day. And we just, UCI had just a microbiome symposium. And it was really fascinating. A man named Jack Gilbert gave like a really interesting talk about how you can tell who have interacted with things in an environment based on just sequencing that person and then sequencing an object that they touched and you can tell the different individuals apart, but you can't, it's not, it's not, I know, right? But it's not at a depth. I was shaking my head. That's what that reaction was. <laughs> but it's not at a depth where it could be used for like criminal justice. Um, it's not as rigorous of testing as say, you know, DNA or fingerprinting, but potentially cool application for the future? Don't know. But I thought that was fascinating. I'm like, the microbes on our skin can identify us. Isn't that crazy? And apparently, if you own a dog, your microbiomes are more similar than if you don't have a dog in a household. I read that, too. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Because dogs, dogs are interesting because the, that, that is an animal that has co-evolved with us. Yes. That, that was domesticated a very long time ago. They have been with us to this day yeah like they have there has to be a lot going on i remember um reading about something uh they were showing in lemurs that 
whenever they cuddle, they're actually secretly swapping like fecal matter, accidentally. But they're also saying that like that's it's, it's important because that transfer of bacteria is somehow important to their immune function, yeah. something like that. And there was that hypothesis with dogs and humans too, and that humans, that people that have dogs, tend to have more robust immune systems or something like that. I believe it. Like, yeah. I believe it. And it's like also why when they look at um, vaginally birthed um, children versus those through C-section, um, there's a difference in sort of what microbiome populates their um, GI tract. And they're saying that has some implications on disease, like whether you're breastfed or you're not. And that's because like that first year of life, if you look at... Um, sort of maybe like one of Jack Gilbert's papers or um, there's a pr- another professor, his Mills, I, I think, if I can remember correctly, just show a sharp increase in, you know, the bacteria in your gut in like the first year. So you're really forming um, that microbiome in that first year and it might be critical for the rest of your life. And so there are people actively studying this because then, you know, based on what bacteria sort of populate your gut, can we say with some sort of confidence what your disease outcomes might look like, you know? So that is also like a fascinating concept. And so this ties together other ideas of like precision medicine, um, really catering care to an individual. And so can you imagine if you know what your microbiome makeup is and you know specifically how to tailor it so that you have the healthiest microbiome possible for yourself, how this can be used for manipulated for disease prevention and um it's just fascinating that's one of the avenues i think uh the there's like a department in uci health that does i think it's like integrative medicine and they're looking at that too sort of like sequencing what's going on in your gut to be like okay hey you need to eat more of this food so that this particular um, phyla is increased or something. It just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, also that and how, yeah, peak anthropocene. That... <laughs> You're like, how much control can we put on our environment? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, the, the spaceship is now maintaining itself and figuring how to better spaceship the inhabitants. It's, it's kind of crazy where we are. I mean, we're trying to, I mean, CRISPR-Cas9 too changed everything. How and you know that's like the whole thing model AD is running on now, so they can take whatever gene and like manipulate it. So I mean, that's where we are in science right now. Like, yeah, it's all inspiring and terrifying. It is, isn't it? <laughs> so, hmm. question about that then is that do you ever think about kind of like just the gravity of that? How much control, like? Really, I believe we're small. Mm-hmm. We don't have that much control. Mm-hmm. But damn, are we trying. Oh, yeah. Damn, are we trying hard. Yes. Real hard. And it, it's going to get, if, you know, the trajectory keeps as it is, we'll, you know, we'll become like a dominant species on just more than just this place, just this rock, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the professor is talking about, um, Charles Moly. He is looking at the effects of deep space travel, right? He wants to help NASA send people to Mars and get them back healthy. So that's, and like he is 
funded for that, okay? Like, I don't know, to the tune of maybe $9 million. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, I mean, I would encourage anyone to read his papers or anything out of his lab or, you know, get some of his grad students. I'll tell them about this. Oh, really fascinating yes. stuff. <laughs> really fascinating stuff. Um, Sound of me wringing my hands. Yeah. <laughs> really really fascinating stuff i'm always you know in awe of like my colleagues and what they're doing and it's like just being in that environment is just inspiring and also like wow okay <laughs> like wow you're just like constantly impressed by the people you're surrounded by yeah this is um almost bordering on mad science at this point yeah yeah you, you got a professor talking about you know taking a drug to clear out his own microbiome of well, the microglia, microglia, sorry, excuse yeah. me. Clear out his own microglia yep. and stuff like that. And certainly it seems as if there's more opportunity to be mad in the realm of bio than, you know, when we would traditionally imagine a mad scientist is more like a physicist or something like yes. that. Like, I think the, the maddest thing I've heard is someone accidentally put his head in a particle beam, um, in a particle accelerator. He was picking up a tool and then just got zapped accidentally. And it was purely by accident. Um, and he wrote a paper on it. He saw some flashing lights. He lived. Um, he went to a doctor. The doctor said he was fine to go go rest, you know. That's but, insane. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel as if there are professors in my department who have done the same. I know, you know, um, Dr. Phelan, um, Robert Phelan, he is a premier um, inhalation toxicologist. And I'm pretty sure he's... He's definitely tested out some of his his uh, his contraptions on himself because he is in you know the business of modeling exposures and so he built a model. He's like, well, is this going to be comfortable for like whatever test animal he was using? Um, and he's like a fascinating guy. He was tell he would, he'd tell you about how you know they picketed his home. Um, to protest because I think inhalation studies based on lung structure is best done in dogs and they're using beagles. I'm like, disclaimer, he's not using dogs anymore. No one is using dogs. Yeah, don't go don't, to his house. Yeah, yeah, don't like stalk me and like say I'm a terrible person. I love dogs. I love all animals actually. Um, but back in the day, he was using uh, beagles, and so he definitely got picketed and protested. And so he's had a colorful scientific career, I think. And so just hearing stories like that of what science was like then and now where we're at a point where we don't need to do that, right? So it's good. And, like, you know, even with technologies, we might not even need to use rodents anymore um, if we can have XYZ organ on a chip, Certainly, yeah, yeah. D-stickies is a you know philosophical quandary that's been going on in the scientific community, right? Yes. At least if you're testing something on yourself, yes, good for you. You're only hurting yourself potentially. Yes, mad fucking respect for you. I yeah, applaud exa you exactly. Um, putting your money where your mouth is. God damn, go mm -hmm. for it, man. But yeah, you're right though. I, I guess. Yeah, you were, there is probably a good reason why we do these respiratory studies on dogs. I don't know what it is, but you say that's there's a good reason for it. Yeah, clearly. it's like their lung development um, and just sort of structure. It's, it you know, it with any model, you're trying to get as close to the human condition as possible. And so you don't want to use primates because they live as long as we do. It's not ideal. Um, 
but right, it makes studies harder and longer because yeah, of that. and more expensive. And I don't know. It's just I'd make it'd make it weirder because they're similar, you know. So it's just they're emo- like not that all animals aren't emotional in some aspect, but I think it just adds to the oh my gosh, what am I doing? Um, sort of situation and just turnover rate because for example if i wanted to study the microbiome um in primates and study alzheimer's disease i would be 60 before i wrote that paper right so it's just not feasible and so that's a lot of things that's how i try to explain like what i do when i'm like yeah i do animal research and but this is why and i treat those animals really well like, if something happens to their cage, I feel terrible, actually. And I, it's a point of trying to explain to people that this is very well regulated. There's an entire, like, system for animal care at every university that conducts these studies. You ha- We have to write protocols. We have to follow them. We're, like, policed to make sure that... Policed is the wrong word. But, like, we're monitored to ensure that we're following the rules, um, and so I don't want people to think like scientists are out here mad and just being like, we don't care about these animals. You know, I know people who name their animals and thank them in their dissertation, you know, so we're not all heartless people. We actually do care about the animals that are in our charge. Yeah, mad. I was more saying about the guy who. <laughs> no, I know, but I, I'm just saying it's just like I've heard people like, oh, my God, like my best friend. She's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you do that, you know? And so it's just explaining to people what's going on so that they have a better sense. So like when I tell people, you know, they don't feel it at all. They get euthanized. It's like falling asleep. They don't feel anything, you know. And I do feel some sense of gratitude when my understanding is deepened because of something I've seen in my animal study. Um, So yeah, so just give that side of it. Because I know there's like a lot of things like, oh, these people are doing this much to these animals. They're like... You know, and so that's uh, kind of it is quite the quandary, right? That on the one hand, like yeah, we are running these tests on animals. We can't run these tests on ourselves all the time because we might, you know, because someone's got to run these tests. But at the same time, like how much has come? How much has come out of that? How much do we? In- how much of our lives today that we enjoy? The uh, the relatively low risk that we won't get certain diseases mm-hmm. because we've studied the heck out of them in animals. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I guess it's the question comes down to like, hey, is it is the animal suffering worth more than the potential net sum of human suffering that could be saved by getting rid of a disease or something like that? Yeah. But that too is also kind of like a weird peak Anthropocene thing, right? Yes. That. Um, yeah, we're going to, because uh, these studies can also benefit the animals as well, right? Um, the more we have to take care of these animals, the more we learn about them at the end of the day. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it was, I, I definitely think it was a hard part of it too, because like, coming out of undergrad, I did chemistry. And coming here, I'm now working with animals. And so that was a learning curve. A little bit to be, you know, to see that, okay, sometimes these animals, you know, you're not going to have them forever (laughs) um, kind of thing. And um, 
you 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 know you have to come to terms with what you're doing kind of like i don't it's like a bad analogy i'm gonna preface this but (laughs) if you think about how you know doctors right they might be terrified about what happens to like one patient um and they're you know it, it has like a huge emotional impact but after they've been in the field for years it just becomes something I don't like that they're desensitized to or they depersonalize it almost. Not that this is necessarily a good thing, but it's just how they have to function within the job. That's kind of what happens, at least in my case, what happened with me in animal research. Just it was one of the things in my grad school journey I had to come to grips with. It's like, yeah, I do animal research. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. That comes a time where it just becomes a job that we do, right? And everyone's got to have one of those. Um, I guess, uh, could you go a little deeper about how that has evolved throughout your journey in grad school? Oh, you mean with working with animals? Yeah. Um, so at first I had to learn how to do gavages, which is I deliver a drug to the animal's esophagus. So it's sticking a tube. It's slightly unpleasant. Um, well, it's not slightly unpleasant. It's highly unpleasant for the mouse. And so the more efficient you are at it, the better, you know, it's over before they really realize. And so that's the point you want to be. But you never start out that way. I am at that point now, but you never start out that way. And so it was it was very unpleasant. And sometimes messing up means that that animal died. So... It's coming to grips with like, oh my God, I did that. I'm so terrible a person. And like, oh my gosh, I hate this. I don't want ever to ever to do this ever again. Right. Um, but then just having like anything in grad school, the perseverance, like see it through and get better. Um, and for me, it's to ensure when I was doing that, the whole time I was doing it, I gavage animals for like nine months. Um, my primary point at that point, like at that point was to make sure the animal was comfortable. I did not want to stress my animals at all, out at all. There are some people who just like grab the mouse and like, no, I'm not like that. So I think I care about my animals. I don't know. I, it's like a thing I'm talking about on our podcast. I'm like, I care about my animals. Um, They're doing this for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't ask and, them to, but they are. Right. You know? And I, I, you know, some people won't care necessarily, but I do appreciate that, you know. Yeah, Especially I when I, I come from a lot of a fam- family and friends that are really animal lovers. They don't love rodents. Because I'm like, hey, I treat my animals better than you treat a rodent in the wild, let's be honest. Um, so there's that. But I just explain to them what is happening. And now my uh, my lab building got flooded this week. Oh, boy. And... My aunt asked me, she's like, how, how are the mice? She's like, how? well, she said rats. And I have to explain to them a thousand times. I don't work with rats. But uh, they they actually care now. They're like, how are your animals? You know, and that's for them. That's asking me, how's your research? Like, was it affected kind of thing? So it's something easy for them to latch on to. So they're like, how are your animals? And so it's kind of nice. Yeah. But that's how that evolved for me. It's just learning that these animals are important for my research to actually do consider, you know, 
what's happening to them and also being as efficient about getting data that I do get from these animals. Um, yeah, and I, it's like a part of my research process, I think. It reminds me, I got a soft spot for lobsters. Because I used to work a job where I have to process like hundreds in like a like week. Yeah. Now, like lobster bisque was on the menu. There was a common, there was a soup on the menu and we made it from scratch. Mm. Um, I'm real good at making lobster bisque now. Nice. Um, but, you know, a lot of lobsters I had to process. I had to like boil them alive. Yes. I had to disassemble them. Then it really is disassembly of a living, what used to be a living creature. And that was honestly one of the things that finally pushed me out of the food industry. Um, all right, spoiler alert, I used to do, I used to cook for a living. Um, I think I've mentioned that a few times in previous episodes, but yeah, I used to cook for a living. And um, yeah, that was one of the things. I was like, I got, I mean, sure, I'm not exactly sure if they have a brain. I remember being told all they have is just a nervous system. They, they don't have a central nervous system or something like that. But I mean, I don't feel good about it. You know, they were alive, uh, and now they're boiled. Now they're in boiling water. It's just something, you know, that was my job. Yeah, right? I don't think I've ever... No, I've never done it. I've never boiled a lobster. Yeah. But now having worked with mice, I think I would be able to. But I'd try to... I've seen people do it, and I remember I had friends who were afraid to. And the water, I don't think wasn't boiling yet i'm like don't do that or it wasn't um and or they put too many lobsters in the pot and it didn't the hot water didn't come up all the, the way and she's like yeah i was just too afraid i was like if you think about it you want this thing to die as quickly as possible right. just save it that pain so it's like you, you at first you might you you're you being hesitant yeah. might make it worse yeah. almost so yeah <laughs> well, do we find I'm sorry, that... this feels like a sidetrack. I'm so no, sorry, no, 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 but... <laughs> no, 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 no. We're talking about lobsters now. This is a total <laughs> sidetrack. I acknowledge that. <laughs> um, I think me putting them in hot water was uh, the least hardest part. Because okay. you put them in water, and then you got to go do something else. It's a kitchen, okay. you're always busy. Yes. Right? But when you get to disassembly, then you're like, okay, now I have to reckon with the fact that I just dumped two crates of lobsters in a pot of boiling oh, water. You know, yeah. like... Um, no. That it's, happens it's like, too with, especially, I would call it kind of like the dark side of research, especially if you're breeding mice for a certain genotype. A lot of them, a lot of them end up not being the correct genotype. And housing costs and all of that means you gotta euthanize them. And so, yeah, so that is a part sometimes I think is neglected in um, like, let's say I'm doing research and I had one of those days and I'm like in a bad mood. I'm like, well, the day didn't go that badly. Like, why am I in a bad mood? I'm like, well, it might just have to do with the fact that I had to do that today, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, you're used to it, but it doesn't have, it has an effect even if it's minimal, you know? So, so, uh, I'm very glad a lot of these technologies are coming out where, you know, potentially we won't have to do that anymore. 
Because, you know, why even bother asking the question if we don't need to in the first place? We doesn't need an answer anymore. I know, but I don't know how long off we are. Yeah, yeah. From, because, you know, a lot of people have done work with cells. And they scale it up in vivo and it goes like, you know, like it's just, wah, wah, wah. It just doesn't work (laughs) in vivo in a live animal because it's not just the cell you have to contend with. It's like different cell populations different organs like well this drug worked really well is it accepted does it penetrate to your target organ you know after ingestion or whatever method you've introduced the drug into the system it's i don't know if we will get to organism level complexity in a non technically not a in vivo model. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. You're not trying to cure the AD brain, you're trying to cure the AD person. Yes. Yes, totally. Because, but then even when we think about it, what is curing AD? I mean, you we have things that can get rid of or reduce the amount of amyloid plaques in the brain or um, attack some sort of... Um, part of the pathology but in the end if it does not affect cognition did you cure ad you know so it's like and how how else are you you can't do a cognitive test on a organ on a chip you know that that endpoint is purely in vivo it's experienced so very existential questions here (laughs) like very much so a lot of them like you know And I feel like sometimes it it might feel a little like too far out because we're scientists and we need to focus on our little pigeonhole to like make our difference. But sometimes it's good to kind of like sit back and like go way out, like big picture sometimes. And the field is like driven forward by people who who, who do that, I think. That's totally not my jam at all. <laughs> Which is why I totally didn't put existential dread on the podcast logo. Go check it out yourselves. It doesn't exist. It's not on there. I promise. Yeah. I'm lying, by the way. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Why am I here? <laughs> Typical grad student <laughs> question. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> right. Oh, man. Yeah. Right. I feel like that. Sometimes when... Um, experiments like you're you're like this is the one and then it goes wrong and you're like why am i here and there there have been times in lab trust me things have gone wrong and i was like i'm gonna go home now because oh yeah that's 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 what's gonna happen right now (laughs) for sure i think uh one day i might have um i did something really stupid and i spent like a long time just coding something and then after like four hours, I just realized I missed like a semicolon or something like that. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to even, I'm, I'm just done going home. Day's not over yet, but I'm, I'm done. I am done. Yeah. Yeah. That's the exist. grad life. Yeah. Roll credits. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyone who has questions about what it is to be a grad student can come and ask me. Yes. Or anyone on this podcast, I suppose. But yeah, it's just research and juggling everything. Thank you for joining me, Janil. Sure, of course. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Good talking to you, too. <laughs>